This is Not True But Useful, a podcast from Cheek by Jowl. My name is Lucy Dawkins and I've been chatting to artistic directors Declan Donlan and Nick Ormerod about all they have discovered about life in theatre in four decades of making plays all over the world. Here's a little bonus episode for you in which Declan talks about the unexpected merits of imposter syndrome. So, hello Declan. Hello Lucy. So today I thought it would be great to talk about something that I heard you observe about Shakespeare characters recently. And that is that they all seem to be suffering from imposter syndrome. None of them seem to fit in. They all feel a bit out of place. So why is this useful for actors to think about when they're performing these great characters from Shakespeare? Yes, I should point out this is not something that's true all of the time. But probabilistically it's true a lot of the times and gives enormous amount of energy if you can use it um, we scare ourselves very often when we're looking at the big texts by calling them things like big texts <laughs> and even the word classic is really quite scary because you think of a temple and steps going up to it but actually they're plays about us and that's why they're good Spinoza says that we should treat the the great authors with respect that we treat a living contemporary like the respect that we treat our friends, somebody who's our equal, and that's the greatest respect that we can show. We should not show them the sort of respect that we pay towards a monument. It's actually like it should be a completely equal relationship, and we're just having a, a chat with Shakespeare. Sometimes quite a scary chat. <laughs> Offering a terrifying chat with Shakespeare, I think. Yes, but, you know, still he's still our equal. You know, he's not better than us. It's absolutely fatal to think that, you know, anybody's better than us, just as it's absolutely fatal to think somebody's worse than us. Actually, we have to go in as, as, as equals with people. But we do strange things. And one of the things that we do is we remove from the characters the difficulties that we face in our own lives. And very often, it's quite useful to apply as keys things that we face as, as, as everyday problems ourselves. We shouldn't deprive these characters of the, the problems that we have. Do you know? They may have feelings quite like us. They may, may, might feel all sorts of things that we feel that we often find too ashamed to talk about, you know. I think we do the characters a disservice when we remove, when we denude them of all the kind of insecurities that we have ourselves, the enabling insecurities. We shouldn't always despise them. Maybe it's a thing we're trying to get rid of in the rehearsal room, like our own fears and insecurities and sense of him being an imposter and so on. Maybe that's really useful. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. you know. So my motto is don't crap on the crap, because it might be useful. Take it and see if you can use it and um, see if it gives you anything. So, for example, many of us, um, like I often have a sense of being an imposter, imposter syndrome, and I know a lot of other people do. And I'm not saying, oh, because this is my problem, I think everybody else has got the problem. But it's probably quite a good idea to think that other people might feel things like that as well and have enough empathy, and if I can find it in my shriveled heart, enough generosity to, you know, think that person maybe feels that they're sort of a bit fake, that they're doing a job that they're not up to. That really helps, I find, in each of the Shakespeare characters. We often imagine that these characters have no problem playing the role that they play. So <laughs> it's like, yes, you're playing a role, which is the character, but the character is also playing a role. 
there's a kind of moment of looking at yourself doing it and thinking, by what right do I do this? So what you're saying really reminds me of the beginning of King Lear, where we've got this, frankly, kind of weird scene where King Lear decides that he's going to divide up his kingdom between his three daughters, but only if they can publicly declare how much they love him. Mm-hmm. And that's actually kind of a strange thing to do as a father. And I think it's really helpful to think that maybe he's only doing this because he feels incredibly insecure as a leader and as a parent. Yes, Maybe he's like the rest of us. I mean, maybe I don't particularly feel like I'm a director all the time. Maybe I feel quite fraudulent and like I'm an imposter. And maybe sometimes the actors feel that as well. And and maybe that's quite useful to just apply to the characters rather than think that these are beings that don't suffer from our neuroses or our inadequacies and so on. And so we know that Lear is a king and we know that he's a father of three daughters, but maybe he doesn't feel he's up to it. And maybe he doesn't feel he's up to it being either king or dad. And you think, well, where do you get that from? Well, I don't know, but maybe it's a key that opens the door. And yeah, but it's not necessarily true. Yeah, well, if it opens the door, just be grateful. And actually, hey-ho, quite a lot of doors do swing open, I think, when you think that, because he stages this extraordinary public showdown, this bizarre show of love, which is the sort of thing that seems bizarre, but I, I do think that if you're present enough If you're really present enough with these situations, unfortunately, they're not quite that bizarre. Putting people's love to the test and and wanting to know that you're more loved than the other one and that you prefer me to mummy and that you prefer me to daddy or that you prefer me... I mean, people do do that. They're incredibly violent things. But also to do it in public, it's quite human to actually want to perform it. And the reason we want to perform it, I think, is because somewhere we don't entirely believe it. If we supply that to people, it's incredible how the humanity of people can just open like a flower in front of us. I don't think necessarily that they believe who they are or the situation they find themselves in. Once you start to sort of let go of those certainties, you might think, wait, 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 no, I've got to have something to hang on to, I've got to have something to hang on to, I've got to have something to hang on to. But maybe it's the security device that's actually causing you the problem. Just be quite careful, because all the time I see these certainties being supplied, and it kind of just freezes up the motors that normal human beings have. And also, because we're so good at performing ourselves, we're so good at performing our certainties, our, you know, that we know we're doing, I have to perform being a completely certain director. But then the problem is that we kind of tend to buy into the forms but we need a lot of empathy and it's a great mistake to think oh that person knows exactly who they are just me sometimes I'm a bit weird I don't exactly know who I am but that person absolutely knows who they are maybe they do but (laughs) maybe they don't and I think I find that very very useful to get into plays but the thing is that our society makes us feel like an imposter because also it's the performance that everybody else puts on of knowing what to feel and we kind of tidy ourselves away and that's why it's very important to have someone you love or a very close friend at least one so that you can actually be brave enough to say I don't feel anything or I I feel the most peculiar things because on the whole it's quite a performance to maintain and we do buy of other people's performances but the performance is often there for good reason we're performing in order to hold ourselves together And when you say that, it reminds me of another famous dad in Shakespeare's plays and another one who's maybe suffering from imposter syndrome. And that's Prospero in The Tempest, right, who's had to raise his daughter completely away from any kind of community 
or a mother and seems to be pretty anxious about whether he's doing a good job. I mean, he spends the whole time controlling and regulating her behaviour. And if you supply this kind of ingredient, you can see a father who wants everything to do the best job for his daughter, but is terrified that he's not really up to the task. Yes, that's definitely true. One of the things we need to remember about um, Prospero that's quite carefully hidden by Prospero in the play is the enormous shame he must feel for um, uh, having allowed this terrible situation to have happened, the dreadful shame he must feel for having allowed himself to be usurped. And very often we don't, when somebody's the victim of a crime, as he believes himself to be, one of the things um, that's really difficult is, is that people very often feel ashamed that the crime has been done to them. But basically Prospero has really screwed up to get to that island. I mean, he obviously did not run... The, the, the country well enough or cleverly enough, whatever power politics it needs to be leader, God knows why anyone would want to be leader. But he didn't have that, and so it imperiled his life and the life of his daughter. And off they go in this boat, and they have this sort of strange exile. And so would you say this man who's put so much energy into ruling over this tiny kingdom of three people and a magical spirit, mm. as if he is a dictator tyrant... Mm is exactly the kind of candidate for the kind of person who feels an enormous sense of imposter syndrome about whether they really are a good enough leader. Yes. See, the interesting thing is it looks like Prospero has no self-doubt. But I think we can supply certain things. Like, you know, On the whole, human beings do suffer from guilt. Maybe there are some people who are psychopathic and don't, sociopathic and don't. The whole play is basically about suppression of this guilt and sense of shame, indeed, that he has, that this, he's allowed this terrible thing to happen. So you never get a hint of that from him, that he was in any way inadequate. But of course, you know, if somebody keeps on telling you that I'm just like super genius and I can do these amazing things with these people on this island, then in real life when somebody starts telling you how powerful they are, how well they've done, how successful they are, you know, to begin with, you might think, oh my God, it's amazing, how amazing. And after a while, you start thinking, oh, if everything's going so well, why are you taking so much time to tell me how amazingly well you're doing? Um, and... There's a line that sticks out for me. There's, there's that long speech of Prospero to Miranda that people often dread because it's very boring. It is. It's so long. I it's think so it's like long. the longest speech in Shakespeare, the one at the beginning of the play where he kind of catches Miranda up to everything that happened before the play began. It is, and it's the story so far. But I've worked out um, in my old age that the bits that seem the most boring, if you look at they become the bits that are the most fascinating, like the English scene in Macbeth and this long speech of Prospero's to Miranda. If you're sort of open to it it it's incredibly rich and it's like it's concealed within a, a looking boring one line always stuck out to me since i first heard the line in, in a school play um, a long 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 time ago and it's it's quite a boring line in a way really it's when he's talking about his brother um, who usurps him and he says um made himself believe he was indeed the duke and I don't know why that line always stuck with me, because it's not particularly memorable. It doesn't have a very strong image in it, because Prospero is the Duke, but the brother instead makes himself believe that he was indeed the Duke. And I don't know, I think the mystery of that line slowly dawned on me over the years, that it's, of course, about Prospero. And this thing of pretending to be somebody, and then by the end of it, you think you are them. So would you say that in this line there's hidden the idea that runs all the way through Shakespeare, which is that we only ever perform the parts that we play for the world? Yes. That he believed himself into his own performance of being a duke 
but he was never really a duke in the first place. No, in truth, he wasn't the duke. He's just somebody pretending to be the duke. In my book, that is being the duke, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, actually, if he, if, he, if he does it and he does it well, and if, if, he, if he's, he doesn't end up in a, in a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean, you know, he's probably doing better than you, you know. So what is it to be the duke? I think what I really love about this approach is it helps us get to grips with the bits of Shakespeare that are basically just a bit weird. And I think often in like academic scholarship, when we come across moments in Shakespeare that are kind of narratively inexplicable, they often get passed over as, well, Shakespeare isn't interested in realism. This is just here to keep the narrative chugging forward. But when we look at these moments and think, well, this is weird, but guess what? Humans are also weird. And maybe this is all to do with this thing with imposter syndrome then sometimes these moments become incredibly believable. I mean, I'm thinking in particular of the beginning of Twelfth Night, where there's a character called Viola. She's shipwrecked on a beach of a foreign land called Illyria, and she believes that her twin brother has died in the storm. And she finds out very quickly that the ruler of Illyria is a man called Orsino, who her father had known. And the logical thing to do would be to let Orsino know she's there and ask for his help. But instead, she makes the decision to dress up as her dead brother and enter his court as a servant, which is a weird thing to do. And there's plenty of interpretations of this play that say, well, Viola makes this decision because that's what needs to happen in order for the rest of this comedy tragedy to fall out. But actually, when we look at this as a young woman who doesn't know how to be herself in this land, who doesn't know who she is once she's lost her brother who simply feels that she is so out of place that she cannot exist as she is anymore, but has to pretend to be someone else. Then this moment makes a huge amount of sense. Exactly. But I think, you know, dressing as the person that you loved and lost isn't quite so weird. I mean, to me, I'm weird too. I had a friend um, die and um, I always wanted to ask his wife if I, I could have one of his ties. Afterwards, but I was too shy to, and I never did, <laughs> so I never asked for one. But I, I just wanted to have something particularly to wear, actually. But it was a kind of, I guess it's kind of magical thing, but the fact that she wants to dress as the brother that um, she's lost and the guilt that she must feel as a survivor would kind of go in, into that, I think. There'll be, we, we can, if we like, find reasons for it, but we don't, hey, we don't really need to find a reason for it. And I think this idea is a key that just opens up so many plays. I mean, I think about the beginning of Richard III. I mean, at the beginning of that play, Richard III comes out and delivers a soliloquy to us in which he tells us that he's been completely left out by everybody around him and recruits us as his best friend and co-conspirator in this grotesque series of crimes he's about to commit. But that really is a portrait of a person who is profoundly left out and profoundly lonely. He's a man who simply doesn't fit in and he finds that incredibly painful. Yes, and also he um, he does a performance of being evil and clever to show that he's not a loser. He tells, he comes on stage saying, you know, I'm an actor playing a man who's pretending to be a king. But also Richard III is presenting somebody who knows what they feel. The danger is that we believe what other people say, um, not because other people are trying to lie, but because it's as if we can tell the truth. And when we start to talk about ourselves, to tell it like it is and what I really feel, and let me tell you, then we often become our most unreliable. That's because we are such a mystery to ourselves. We try and do a bit more each day, maybe, to get to know ourselves and be a bit less surprised. But there's always going to be, I think, a mystery at the end of it. 
if um, I don't quite believe who I am, I don't quite believe I'm the king, I don't quite believe I'm the father, I don't quite believe I'm up to this job, I don't quite believe I'm a fane, I don't quite believe I'm a prince of Denmark, I don't quite believe I belong in this court, I don't quite believe, you know, all of these things. Well, that's actually really good. All of the characters are like that. There's, there's the fear that you're not quite up to it. So the essence of imposter syndrome, for example, is, you know, I'm down as being a director, but there's a big distance between me and being a director. I don't fully comfortably fit into it. You know, it's like a, a suit that doesn't quite fit and it's got a bit tight and it's a bit sort of... But I think that's how life is for a lot of us, that it's we're, we're all in clothes that don't really fit terribly well. So we might meet somebody and, and they seem completely accomplished and comfortable in their skin and knowing who they are. And that's fine, and I'm, I'm, I'm not speaking truth. Maybe there are people who are like that. I really don't know. But I just know they're not really in the plays I direct. And I don't find it terribly interesting. What I find more interesting is the idea that there's always some distance between ourselves and, and what we're doing. So would you say your useful advice to the actor is to imagine that the character thinks of themselves as a bit of a fake? Yeah, that can help. But other things can help as well. One of the things is that you think you, might, you, you fear you might be fake. Also, another really useful thing is to think, I don't quite belong. These, these relationships that sound very neurotic, um, okay, maybe, but maybe to be a human being is to be somewhat neurotic. Maybe that's actually in our genetic makeup. In my experience of life, it certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> well... You know, I think that's absolutely true. Inside us, there's a journey happening. We present ourselves as being a thing, whereas in fact, we're a movement. And although we can't tolerate that level of honesty in our real lives, we you know, wear our clothes and we, we garden, we, we perform knowing what we're doing. But in the theatre, I think, we, we get to look at something in which we see these processes. And they're very, very important because they make us feel very isolated. And we're not at our best when we feel isolated. I think one of the things that happens in the theatre is we sit with a group of people looking at people on stage in a sort of <laughs> a kind of grisly equality. And we, we don't have our pretenses for a bit. We just let ourselves um, celebrate what it is to be equal with other human beings. So would you say that going to the theatre is a useful and healthy and good thing to do because it reassures us all that it's okay to feel a bit fake sometimes? That's one of the things, yes. What saddens me is when actors think they have this almighty Everest in front of them to climb this sense of, you know, Leah absolutely believes he's king, absolutely believes he's father, he's absolutely confident like that. But there aren't many confident people in, the, in these plays, not completely confident. And if you can use that, that's great. If you can't use it, that's fine too. But you need energy from somewhere. And that's quite a good place to find it, I find. Well, brilliant. Thanks very much, Declan. Thank you very much, Lucy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Not True But Useful. If you like what you heard, you can find lots more episodes on the Cheek by Jal website, alongside photos and videos of past productions. The music you're hearing now was composed by Sergei Chakrashov for Cheek by Jal's production of Three Sisters. Stay tuned in for more bonus episodes in the coming weeks. Mm-hmm.